It's the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. The CBC's Robert Harris began his career in broadcasting in Ottawa many years ago, and we were very happy indeed to bring him home as a guest speaker during our recent Mozart Haydn Festival. Robert Harris literally took a page from his book, How to Listen to Mozart, in his pre-concert talk of the same title. It was standing room only on September 29th, as Robert guided patrons through the lexicon of Mozart's style and the development in his short life. So, from the Salon at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, Robert Harris. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm wearing this thing because we're recording this for uh, to put on the NAC website. I noticed that in a, in, a, in a fit of insanity, I titled this lecture, How to Listen to Mozart. This was uh, um, greater minds than mine have, have tried and failed to actually answer this question appropriately because, as I hope we'll see before we're done, um, You'd think that listening to Mozart was the simplest thing in the world. And then when you look at the history of um, performances of Mozart's music, you find astonishing gaps. For example, in the 19th century, no one listened to Mozart at all. Mozart was almost forgotten as a composer through all of the 1800s. Um, he was considered um, light music, sort of entertaining music, but not on a level with a Beethoven or a Wagner, who were serious musicians. And, Mozart clearly was um, not a serious musician because the music is so lighthearted uh, and frothy and, and, and has such surface charm. Uh, a musical mind as acute as Robert Schumann's could uh, listen to the 40th symphony, the G minor symphony, which is one of Mozart's most agonizing pieces of music, we now think. And Schumann heard in it only sweetness and light and grace. Um, and Schumann was no musical fool. I mean, he knew music extremely well. But people misunderstand Mozart all the time. So the question of how to listen to Mozart is not as um, frivolous as it may seem. And I want to try and start to answer that question by posing another question. And that question is that these days, um, most of us revere Mozart as a, a, as a composer. We, we love Mozart. The question is, would we have liked Mozart if we had known him? This was a question that one of the most interesting biographies of Mozart that I have read was actually not written by a musicologist but by a novelist, a German novelist named Wolfgang Hildesheimer who in 1956, the 200th anniversary of Mozart's birth, wrote a biography of him. And he asked this question. He said, if we're honest with ourselves, would we have liked Mozart as a person? And he came to the conclusion that almost certainly the answer is no we would not have liked Mozart as a person. Um, that image that we have of Mozart that you saw in Amadeus, you know, the film with, you know, the childlike, charming, but roguish, uh, always playing tricks, likable, but sort of not quite mature. This was a fiction. 
um, created by Nanero Mozart, Mozart's sister, many years after his death, to try and explain away um, the inevitable reality that Mozart was a very, very difficult person. Yes, you, all of those things were true, but he was a very exasperating person. In other words, these, these, these incidents, these episodes of him being childish and childlike, eventually, if we look at the evidence of all of the people in his life, they, ju they just got so exasperated with him because he would never stop and he never knew when to stop. He was very self-destructive in his behavior. Um, he would inevitably say the wrong thing at the wrong time. He would leap about. He would do things which, again, sound charming. But, you know, we, we think that Mozart died young, and he died youngish, but he was 35, not 25. So he was a mature man um, exhibiting this kind of behavior. And if you look at all the people in his life, life um, you come to a really sad conclusion, and, and, which is I don't think there's one person in Mozart's life who actually loved him. Um, his father was clearly in love with the young Mozart. There's extraordinary stories uh, about Leopold um, being in awe of the talent of, of his child. There's one story which, unfortunately, I would tell you, except I can never tell it without breaking down, so I'd rather not do that because it'll be on the podcast, but um, it has to do with Mozart as a seven-year-old um, wanting to play on. So the, the, the Leopold had friends over and they were reading a new string quartet. And Mozart, at seven, said, I want to play along. And Leopold said, you know, I bought you this tiny little violin, but you haven't had a lesson on it yet. You don't know how to play the violin. You've never practiced. And Mozart said, well, let me play the second violin part. You don't have to practice to play the second violin part. <laughs> and he proceeded to play the whole piece, the second violin part, and then the first violin part at sight, without ever having touched the instrument before. Uh, this is what the young Mozart was capable of, and there's no doubt that Leopold um, you know, was awestruck by this and loved his son. But there's also no doubt that as Mozart go got older, um, Leopold's exasperation with his son became more and more real and very, very... It wasn't funny. To Leopold, it was clearly um, very aggravating. Um, and the letters that he wrote Mozart, um, you can feel this. They're, they're more and more angry. And in fact, we don't have many of the letters that Leopold wrote to Mozart because Constanza Mozart, um, you know, Mozart's uh, widow, destroyed most of them because they were so mean that she threw them out. So what we have, it's like one-way co telephone conversation. We have Mozart's answer to these letters in the Mozart letters, but we don't have the original letters. But you can tell from the tone that Leopold... Because Mozart wouldn't look after himself and he, and he wouldn't get a decent job and he wasted his talent. And as I say, for Leopold, this became more and more exasperating and more and more aggravating. And what about Constanza, you know, his wife? You know, we, we hope, we want to have had Mozart to have had love in his life, you know? And maybe Constanza did. Constanza, everything in the Mozart biography is confusing. So again, the image we have of Constanza is this uh, frivolous, young woman who spent all of Mozart's money, um, you know, was basically very bubble-headed, not really very deep. Um, and the problem with that portrait is that after Mozart's death, Constanza Mozart married a Danish um, diplomat, Mr. Niesen, and took up residence in Copenhagen. And 
was one of the grand dame of Copenhagen society. This was a woman who clearly um, either changed dramatically after Mozart died, someone with you know, great probity, she looked after his business affairs after he died, she kept care, care of his manuscripts and his copyrights. Something's missing in this portrait. The Constanza that we know of, Mozart's Constanza, doesn't seem like the Mrs. Neeson who is this grand dame in the 18, 1800s, the 19th century. Did she love Mozart? Uh, I really hope so, you know. Um, did Mozart love her? I really hope so as well. The woman we know that Mozart loved because he proposed to her um, was in fact Constanza's sister, Aloysia uh, Weber, the, the Weber family. Um, this was a tall blonde woman, she was a singer. Uh, Mozart was very much in love with her. He proposed to her and she was shocked by this proposal because Mozart, you know, he was like five, five, he was a tiny little guy. Everybody in, in his time um, had smallpox. So everybody had, you know, their complexions were not pretty. Mozart almost died from smallpox. He, was, he went blind for a week with this disease when he was a young man. So Aloysia was just shocked that he would even think of proposing to her. So she turned him down. Um, and then a long story about how he went to live with the Webers when he came to Vienna. Leopold is convinced that Mrs. Weber tricked um, Mozart into marrying Constanza by offering him lodging in their house and then spreading rumors that it was very unseemly that a young man and a young woman were living together and they got married. Um, so did Constanza love Wolfie? God, let's hope so, you know. Um, did Aloysia, who he loved? No. Um, what about Nanerl, the sister? You know, the, the few letters we have of Nanerl, pretty jealous of, of Wolfgang. She couldn't help it. Um, she was a greater musician, actually, when they, because the two of them went through these tours together where, of course, the young Mozart, because he was seven, um, was feted everywhere and he sat on Maria Theresa's lap and, you know, he was the most famous child in the history of Europe. Still, there's no, never been a child more famous in the history of Europe than Mozart. He was the most famous child. And poor Nanerl, who was a very accomplished musician herself, and by all accounts actually played better than he did, um, was just left in his shadows. Now, I'm not saying that she, you know, hated him for this, but you wonder, you just wonder. Because as I say, she was the one who created this Mozart myth after he died. Maybe to help explain away these odd behaviors. And they were odd. As I say, it's, it's not just, you know, childlike. It was worse than that. You know, if we were friends with Mozart at a certain point, you know, you'd turn to your husband, you'd turn to your wife, and you'd say, you know what, I just don't want to see the Mozarts anymore. Okay, like, you know, because, you know, we have a nice dinner party, and he comes over, and he jumps around, and he meows like a cat, and you get tired of it, you know. Yes, he's a genius, but he's just tiresome. He's tiresome. And he was. And it's interesting, you know, many people noted this about, about Mozart's behavior. It was a truism. The only person that I know of who tried to understand it was, in fact, Aloysius' husband, a guy named Joseph Lang, who was uh, an actor. And he's the person who painted that famous pic uh, unfinished portrait of Mozart, you know, where he's sitting at the, I don't know if you know this, it's, it's in the Mozart house. He's sitting at the keyboard. Um, it's not finished. It's, it's half finished. Uh, one of the most famous portraits of Mozart, Joseph Lang, painted that, and, the, and of course, it's just tragic because, of course, uh, uh, you know, Aloysia, who Mozart loved, married Joseph Lang, they had a horrible marriage, um, ended in divorce. But Joseph Lang said something really, really interesting that I read once in a book, and he said that 
trying to understand why Mozart was so vulgar, because he was a vulgar person. You know, and again, that's really funny up to a point. And then for a mature man to, to continually act that way isn't funny. And what Lang said was that he got the feeling that when Mozart composed, he was in a realm of such pure beauty and such pure perfection that he, he couldn't bear it um, for too much, too much time. And he needed to somehow create the opposite so that when he left that perfect realm of his own mind, of his own composition, he was sort of forced to be um, vulgar. In other words, I'm not explaining it well because I can't quite grasp it myself, but I can feel what Lang was trying to say, which is that um, when you can feel how, what music can be and what perfection in composition can be, that's all, the, the, the imperfections of the world become unbearable. You know? So you're in your room and, and everything works, and when you leave your room, everything's a mess. And the way you deal with that is to make fun of it, to be frivolous, to, to um, enter that world, almost to exaggerate that world, to reduce that feeling in you of the, un, of, of the uncomfortableness of, of, of feeling both. Because otherwise, you have to move into the, our world um, with that sense of perfection within you, and our world isn't perfect. So he almost overcompensated. That was Lang's theory. You know, he was the only person I know who ever actually tried to figure it out. And I think it tells us a great deal about Mozart, because it rings true to me. It rings true that this man who really wasn't one of us in many, many ways, um, would find it so difficult to move from the world of his composition into the, 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 the real world in which he lived. And he couldn't bear the contradiction. And the way he dealt with it was to sort of explode into hijinks and and, you know, and telling fart jokes. And, you know, I mean, like this was, I mean, he was the most vulgar man. We tend to, for a hundred years, the letters he wrote to his cousin were suppressed. Um, suppressed, I mean, like they never were published, never. And they're almost unpublishable today. I mean, they are really vulgar. Um, probably gonna find them on the internet somewhere, I'll bet. Um, so this sense of Mozart, this, this double sense, um, really infected him and his music. What's interesting, of course, is that if he had been born in the next generation, this wouldn't have been a problem. People would have understood this. In other words, Beethoven, 14 years younger, Beethoven was sort of the same, except Beethoven, you know, who lived in this world of, you know, Beethoven's fifth and these great symphonies, when he entered the world, brought that world with him. He didn't try and disguise it. He was gruff, he was rude, he, you know, stormed around Vienna humming to himself. Uh, he was a very difficult man. But because it was the Romantic era, people expected the creative person to be difficult. They didn't find it unusual. Beethoven was that way, you know. Schumann was that way. Schumann creates these two worlds. So Schumann, who also feels, you know, two personalities within him, creates two musical characters, Florestan and Eusebius. So he, again, is another way of dealing with this contradiction in, in, in his feeling. Mozart had none of this available to him. Uh, Beethoven said something once, which is, I think, the greatest epitaph for Mozart that no one knows, and that is he was listening to a Mozart piano, uh, a string quartet, or maybe one of the quintets with Carl Czerny, his friend. And Beethoven turned to Czerny and said, you know, that's where Mozart said um, to the world, 
here's what I could have done for you if my time had been right. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that, because this is Mozart. His time was wrong. His time was wrong. He was just before his time. So, you know, Mozart was a man of great feeling at a time when music was supposed to be very mannered and beautiful. He was a man of, um, who understood deep feeling, but um, everything had to be surface. Everything had to be disguised. That was the world he lived in. If he had lived 25 years later, that would have been different. If he had lived 15 years later, that would have been different. Look at the operas. Now, he didn't write any of the libretti, obviously, but look at the subjects that he took for um, and, and so beautifully set. So Figaro, what's Figaro? Figaro is all about disguise. Figaro is, Figaro is about the servants actually having the character of nobility that the nobility should have and the nobility having the character that the servants should have. So Figaro and Susanna are the honest people and the Count is the dishonest person. The Count acts like a servant. Um, he's lecherous, he, ha he knows no bounds, he knows no rule. He's supposed to be the man who sets um, the rule of law for his domain and he constantly breaks it. Um, and then the poor Countess is right in the middle, right? Who, who knows about him but can't help loving him. So that's Figaro. Don Giovanni, the last one, is about a man who refuses to disguise himself, right? but he's always in disguise, right? So Don Giovanni kills the commandante in scene one in disguise, in the ball. Everybody's in disguise. What's the story of Don Giovanni? A man who refuses to disguise himself. And when the statue comes at the end and basically says, repent, Don Giovanni says, no, I'm going to be true to myself. It's all about truth and disguise. And then the one in the middle, to me, the most profound of all of these three great De Ponte operas, Cosi Fan Tutte, which everybody takes as sort of lightly and fluff, and you know, they're not quite sure what to make of it. Um, it's the most profound of all, because it's all about disguise. So it's a stupid story that's really, really um, interesting. And to me, what's interesting about it is, remember, there are two women and two men, and the men want to test their, their, their lover's um, affection, so they disguise as Albanians and come back and woo the other one. But the, the, the truth at the heart of Cosi Fantuti is when these people are in disguise, they actually express their true feelings. They fall in love, real love, with the other person's partner. But those feelings are real. When they pretend to be real, they're actually in disguise. Their feelings um, in the first act are disguised. Their feelings when they're Albanians are, um, are real. You know, I've often challenged, not that I'm a director, I'd love to see a production of Cosi Fantuti where the, the, it's Ferrando and whatever his name is who put the disguises on at the beginning and take them off when they're pretending to be Albanians because that's really what happens in Cosi, is that in that middle when they're supposedly in disguise, they express their true feelings. This is so Mozartian. You know, this is Mozart down to a core, you know, not knowing how to express his own feelings. So in his personal life, as I say, these feelings that he had, that the music, his own music engendered in him, um, he, couldn't, he didn't know how to express them. So he expressed them by jumping up and down and meowing like a cat and ro running around rooms and you know, insulting people. He just didn't know how else to express it. 
his operas is where he puts all of that ability. It's really interesting, again, if you compare Beethoven and Mozart in terms of knowledge of themselves. Their letters are really, really fascinating. And there's um, one thing which I've often felt is true, which is that when you read the Mozart letters, his observations of the world outside of him are immaculate. There's, they seem, obviously we don't know, but to be so perceptive. When he talks about manners at court, when he talks about how people look, when he talks about how people behave, he is such an exact observer of human nature. It's one of the reasons why the operas are so, why he was a great opera composer, is that he could observe how people acted. So when he's talking about other people, you believe him. Every statement he makes about himself sounds fantastic and unbelievable. You can't believe one thing that Mozart says about himself in these letters. Not one. Either because he's saying them to his father and he's trying to pretend for his father that he's doing things that he's not doing. Father says, have you been looking for a job? Have you written a letter to count so-and-so because they're looking for a third you know, court composer and you need a job, did you write that letter? And Mozart says, um, yeah. Sure, wrote that letter to the count, and you know, and, and he said, not, they're not looking for something. They're, you know, you, you just tell these letters. The most, the saddest letter in the Mozart repertoire, he's traveling with his mother in Paris, and his mother dies. Um, and, he's, and, he, and Mozart doesn't know what to do, right? He's 21, and he's terrified that his father is going to be furious at him somehow for not protecting his mother during this trip. So the day his mother dies, he wrote two letters. One was to a friend... The first was to his father, in which he said, Mom is really sick. I'm really, really worried about her, right? Um, and then the next letter, like he posted that and wrote another letter to a friend saying, my mother's just died. I don't know how to tell my father. What do I say, right? So Leopold, of course, instantly knew what was going on, but that was Mozart. So when you read the Mozart letters, all of the statements he makes about himself, you're not sure. If you turn around and you read the Beethoven letters, it's exactly the opposite. Beethoven misunderstood everything that was going on around him. You know, he was making quarrels where there were none. Um, he was, you know, con con was convinced people were cheating him when they weren't. Beethoven basically couldn't multiply um, very well, so whenever there would be a concert and he'd add up the receipts, he would always get the wrong number and be convinced he was cheating. And all the Beethoven letters are full of him... Um, you know, being mad at somebody and then apologizing profusely the next day, and, you know, being mad at somebody and apologizing profusely the next day. So every statement Beethoven makes about the outside world is wrong. And every statement he makes about himself is right. You just feel it, you know? He understood himself really, really well. The world was a mystery to him. Mozart's the other way around. He understood the world all too well. He was a mystery to himself, you know? And this shows up in the music. This shows up in the music. Um, and this is why it's so easy to misinterpret Mozart's music, because it's, it's a music of slyness. It's a music of great feeling, but that feeling is always hidden away. It's always disguised in a way. It's part of the world in which Mozart lived. That's why a Schumann could listen to the G minor symphony and hear just light and grace, because it's full of light and grace. Right? Um, and Mozart is a very sly composer as well. That's one of the things that, that, that I find so interesting about him. I'm going to play a couple of excerpts from the Hofner Symphony. Um, so that disguise was really important to him musically as well as personally. Before I play the music, if you just look at the political situation, that's the other thing. So Mozart was out of place in terms of his own personal life. Economically, he was out of place. Mozart... Um, Basically, he grew up in a system where 
a musician belonged to a court in the same way a cook or a maid belonged to a court. So the Archbishop of Salzburg had cooks, and he had you know, uh, people who drove his livery, and he had musicians. And as far as he was concerned, they were all the same. They did what they were told, and they provided whatever they had to provide. Cooks provided food, musicians provided music. It was as simple as that. And Leopold Mozart, who grew up in this system, could never could understand why Mozart couldn't understand why he shouldn't just fit into that system. But, you know, we're, we're now looking at the 1760s, 1780s, 1789, the, the Bastille was stormed and the French Revolution started. That's only two years before Mozart's death. You know, um, so Mozart was right on the cusp. So at one point, Mozart just got fed up working for the Archbishop of Salzburg. And there's some trumped up thing. The Archbishop went to Vienna and Mozart went with him and the Archbishop came back and Mozart stayed in Vienna too long and enraged the Archbishop. And finally, the Archbishop called him in um, uh, and basically to upbraid him. And Mozart said, well, I quit. And basically, Count Arco, the man who was having this interview, was saying, like, you can't quit. I mean, like, you work here. You, like, we, you don't have a contract. Like, the, you know, the whole idea of quitting, like, this is your life. This is who you are. But Mozart did. So Mozart went to Vienna to try and make a living as a freelance musician. He was one generation too early. You know, literally, 14 years later, Beethoven did exactly the same thing and made a go of it and made a lot of money. Um, but Mozart was just, it was just not right. The time was not right. So Mozart was poor. Um, politically, the same thing. The French Revolution was just a few years away when Mozart died. Um, and so he felt that sense of liberation. You know, there's this famous moment in Don Giovanni when the Don says, to liberty, you know, um, during the, the ball scene. And it's been interpreted, you know, it's impossible not to interpret this uh, politically. Figaro, which is again about a, a, a servant outsmarting uh, his master, was banned in France, set in Spain, but, but written in revolutionary France or pre-revolutionary France and banned in France because people in Paris knew exactly what this represented. You know, if you have a, a play that's about servants outsmarting their masters and, you know, you're literally 15 years away from the storming of the Bastille, although no one knew it at the time, people got the message. And so this was censored. So again, the fact that Mozart was attracted to this kind of a, of a, of a, a story uh, just shows all of these things that are sort of um, boiling away in him, boiling away in him, that as a person, as I say, he could not express, but as a musician, he could. So I'll give you one example. And this, is from the, this is the opening of the Hofner Symphony, which it's so sly. And basically what this is about is two different moods. The whole symphony is about two different moods. Let's pray that this works. Um, let me just get my glasses. Um, and the two moods are basically, you know, expressed by light and shade, but darkness, you know, loud and soft. But there's a little trick to this, because Mozart is always playing tricks. This is the thing, if you actually can read music and look at the Mozart manuscripts, they always contain little things that you just never thought of until you actually see it. So, here's the opening of the Hafner, okay? Really loud. So there's one Mozart. Now here's another one. Really quiet, right? And really delicate, right? And then it changes mood again. 
and really dark, right? And then lighter here. Okay, so that very simple opening um, is, um, is, I mean, Beethoven would never written an opening like that. Once Beethoven established a mood, he kept that mood, you know? Mozart, and again, he wasn't alone. Haydn, who you'll hear tonight, does exactly the same thing. So I'm not saying that Mozart invented this style of composition, but he used it. But there's a hidden little trick in there, and basically this hidden little trick is, what we're hearing is an octave, a disguised octave, you know, a, a do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. So it's da, 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 bum, ba, bum, bum, ba, da, um. So it's da, di, di, da, da, it's do, do, ti, la, so. It's basically, if you listen, that's all that opening is. And then he gets real quiet, and you hear this dum, bum, ba, dum, bum, ba, dum, which sounds like a different world is entering. Take a listen, and I'll, uh, I hope uh, you hear what I'm talking about. Let me just think. Okay. He just keeps going. So that little part in there, what you have is this loud stuff. Da, da, ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum. So that's one character. And then dum bum ba dum bum ba dum, which sounds like a completely different person. Like a, but that dum bum ba bum is in fact the same octave. So it goes do ti da da la, ti la 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 so so, fa 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 fa. It's the same octave. So what does this mean? Do we, does Mozart expect us to hear that? No. What he is doing is this is Mozart. He is giving us two things at the same time. He is giving us these two moods, right? The, the big opening with the octaves and the big strings, which then very quiet, gets very quiet, which is two different ideas. But at the same time, you can see that he's playing with this octave, which is the same idea. So for that little soft part to start with the fa, after we've gone do, ti, la, so, you know, basically going down, is a, a means of making things different and the same at the same time. It's, 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 it's hidden away. All of these things, and did Mozart do this on purpose? Absolutely. This is a tri trick he uses time and time again, where he makes you think that something different has happened, but when you actually investigate it, um, it's something the same has happened. Um, this is in music. So the reason that mu Mozart's music is easy to m not misinterpret, but interpret in many different ways, is that he was a man of disguise. He was a man of feeling that um, never got fully uh, expressed without some element of disguise, some element of appropriateness, some element of decorum. That was the world he was in. You know, had he lived much longer, I mean, he died in 1791, you know, I, I've thought of this, if he had lived just like 10 years later, he would have heard the Eroica Symphony. He, would have been, he could have attended the premiere of the Eroica Symphony. And you can't imagine two worlds more different in some ways than the, the Mozart, let's say, of the Magic Flute and the Beethoven of the Eroica Symphony, though, though they were both in the same key. And I've wondered, you know, all my life, what, how would Mozart have reacted to that feeling of a Beethoven? Because, as I say, it wasn't that far away. Um, from, from, from his death. And my guess is he would have loved that. Whether He would have been in his 40s then. 
It may have been too late for him to actually embrace this new world, this world of great feeling, but he has it. This is what Beethoven meant when he listened to that string quartet. He basically said, behold what I might have done for you if the time was right. In other words, what Beethoven was hearing was all that tremendous emotion of Mozart um, disguised. He heard the disguise as well. And basically what Beethoven was saying to Carl Czerny was, um, if his time had been right, he wouldn't have had to disguise himself. If his time had been right, he would have been able to take these feelings and not have to um, suppress them. He would, have not, he would have been able to express them in his music, but also in his life. He would have been a, a, another Beethoven ra, who, who would, as I say, had that same feeling within him of feelings too great to bear, but expressed them by basically being the great composer. Mozart, the idea of the great composer didn't exist when Mozart was alive. You were expected to be you know, a well-behaved, well-mannered young man, you know, that's what composers were, like Papa Haydn, great composer, like the most well-adjusted artist in history. I mean, when I hear Haydn today, Haydn is the great, the most well-adjusted artist ever. I mean, like he was a great businessman, he was a great composer, he was like a great everything, but you know, nothing ever ruffled him, you know, because he knew how to deal with the world. Leopold Mozart, um, Mozart's father, um, not as great a musician as Haydn, he knew how to deal with the world. He knew how the world worked, right? He knew the palms you had to grease. He knew the people you had to flatter. He knew the things you had to do to, for the archbishop to get along. And for the life of him, he couldn't understand why his son didn't understand this. And his son didn't understand this because his son saw a different world. His son saw a world where true feeling should be the, 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 the guide, not manners, not who do you know, not you know, that, that sort of political world. Mozart didn't know how to play that. Anyway, so, that, so basically, um, that's the Mozart that you hear virtually every time you hear his work, especially in the more mature works. The three symphonies you'll hear, if you come, you know, for the, the I'm not sure, later in the week, the 39th, the 40th, and the 41st, they're just remarkable, these mature works, and the Hafner tonight is that way as well. Um, it's all about alternation of feeling. It's all about uh, listening underneath the music to hear that sort of um, emotional world going on. Anyway, so that's the best I can do to give you a hint. Um, 30 minutes, how to listen to Mozart. We've got about five more minutes. If there's any questions anybody would like to ask, I'll repeat them so they'll, they'll get on the tape. Yes. It, not, not especially well, you know. Um, uh, the question was how accurate was Amadeus? It, it, you know, it went part of the way to, to express the fact that Mozart was that hijinks kind of a person, but um, the transformation of him, you know, at the end when he's sick and it was too quick, if, if you really want like a critic's view. Um, and, but, but it went part of the way. In other words, it did reveal to people that, that, you know, that there was this other dimension and it was very accurate to the portrait that Nannerl, in effect, by publishing a biography. She published a biography of Mozart in 1818 or something. And this was her theory. I mean, in other words, she basically said, in effect, my brother never grew up. My brother was a boy child. In other words, he was a man child. He basically was a, a, a child in a man's body. And that's exactly what Amadeus portrayed. Um, as I say, when you actually read accounts, it's worse than that. You know, you wish that was what it was. But I can tell you, Mozart became, every single person that he dealt with eventually expressed this aggravation. They eventually 
wrote a letter to a friend in exasperation saying, I've just had enough of this guy. You know what? I just, it's just too much. You know? So clearly there was something about him that really pushed the boundaries beyond just sort of being fun. Um, and that's exactly what, the, what, what um, Lang was talking about, this need somehow to overcompensate for the different worlds he was in. Yes? When did he get discovered again? In the 20th century, basically. Um, it was the 20th century that really rediscovered uh, Mozart, as it did with many other composers. Vivaldi, no one, completely unheard of until the 20th century, after the 17th century. And a lot of that had to do with the recording business. Um, oddly enough, I'm in the midst of doing a series for CBC on the history of the record business, and one of the things I discovered much to my surprise is how important classical music has always been to the history of the record business. Absolutely essential. And what happened was a tremendous amount of repertoire was rediscovered because there were records to be made. And it allowed people to deal with repertoire that wasn't on the concert circuit. So a lot of that rediscovery of Mozart happened in the 20th century. Yes? Uh, maybe. I think maybe Haydn probably, uh, who really loved Mozart and saw, of, of all people, knew what a great musician he was. You might be right. I'm not saying no one loved Mozart, but it's like with Beethoven, there are people who love Beethoven, you know who they are. Like some women, like the, not necessarily, you know, great personages in his life, but there are people, you can just tell. And when you actually start thinking through the Mozart, he had friends, lots of friends. Chicanator was a friend, the guy who wrote the libretto for the magic flute. But the friendship seems very brittle. Haydn might be the closest thing to a real true friend, I think. Anyway, I better let you go because the concert starts in 20 minutes. Anyway, thank you very much. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa.